0: Okay, so I kind of sort of have one, so the, the, the re- <laughs> so uh, y- you, you might be tempted to think that we're all wearing red today in celebration of the Philadelphia Phillies playing in the World Series. but That's not the case. Red is the color of fire, and fire is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. So that's why we always wear red on Reformation Sunday. Should I keep talking, Dan? Okay, hopefully. We're better now? Okay, wonderful, good. Thank you. Glad you all are here today that can help out in that regard. I would like you to do me a quick favor right now. I would like you to think about the top two things that you are struggling with right now in your life. Those things over which you are fearful, anxious, worried, concerned, or preoccupied. Take a minute or two to think about what those things are. If it would help you to write them down, feel free to write them down. You're not going to be asked to share them. Again, things you are struggling with right now in your life. Things which consume your time, and your energy with worry and anxiety. Just pick the top two. So remember them now. And now, I'd like you to also mentally list or write down if it would benefit you the benefits you receive in your life because of Jesus Christ. Maybe just one or two. Meaning, you believe in Jesus, so what? What does that give you? What does that do for you? What does that confer upon you that you would not otherwise receive if you believed in nothing, for example, or believed in another religious system of belief? So take just a brief minute to do that as well. So the top two things with which you are most struggling, and then the top two things that are the benefits you receive from believing in Jesus Christ. If I had to guess, I would guess that the things you thought about on the first list, things about which you are gravely concerned uh, might include your marriage or relationship with a significant other, maybe concern over a family member, a loved one, or a friend, uh, financial, monetary struggles, maybe job security or employment matters, or perhaps your physical health. The reason you likely mention variations on those themes is because they are true. They are real, they are valid, and they are raw. I'm also guessing that few of you, and perhaps none of you, listed your relationship with God. I wonder why. The reason I bring it up today is because in our text, the Apostle Paul, its author, reveals himself to be wrestling with exactly that issue. The letter of Romans as a whole and many of Paul's other levels, which letters which constitute the bulk of the New Testament concern this very issue of a human's relationship to God. One could say the same thing about Jesus' focus in the four Gospels. What does it mean to believe in God and to obey him? What does it mean to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and to follow him where do we stand in relationship to God are we reconciled or estranged and why are we intimate or distant and why are we in right standing or out of alignment and what constitutes each state which determines each state This text from Romans 3 reveals the central issue to be are we saved, justified, made righteous with the presence of God, mentioned eight times in the text, because of God's grace, which we receive by faith, mentioned six times in the text, or by our works, that is our moral behaviors according to the laws of God, mentioned nine times in the text, or by some combination of the two, grace and word. This is the central issue for Paul. It will be the central issue in 400 more years when St. Augustine disputes with the Donatists and the Pelagians over the future direction of the Christian church. And it will be the central issue in 1,100 more years when a German monk named Martin Luther begins what will become known as the Protestant Reformation, a movement that in many ways splits the Christian church. Wars will be fought Over this issue. Blood will be savagely spilled over this issue. Hundreds of thousands will die over this issue. This central issue of what constitutes a person's correct standing in the eyes or the sight of God which preoccupied the church for the first 1,700 years of its 2,000 years of existence is now peripheral or marginal at best with almost no one addressing it in any significant fashion anymore. You and I, we will discuss abortion, LGBTQ issues, prayer in schools, maybe poverty and social justice issues ad nauseum. Our list of concerns will always focus on health and finances and relationships with other human beings. But where we stand, Coram Deo, Latin for before God, in the presence of God, seems to be forevermore buried on the back page in fine print. Every time I administer a quick, off-the-top-of-your-head quiz of the Ten Commandments, People gradually throw out, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. Before thinking some more and maybe finalizing the list with, oh yeah, honor your mother and father and remember the Sabbath. And when we place them in order, they invariably realize that they filled in the bottom seven without completing the top three. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make for thyself a graven image or idol to bow down and worship it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In other words, we kind of remember how we should treat other people. We do not assign the same importance to our relationship with God. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wrestled with God. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel wrestled with God. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam wrestled with God. David and Solomon wrestled with God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all wrestled with God. Peter, James, and John wrestled with God, as did Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Paul and James, Barnabas and Timothy all wrestled with God. Augustine and Luther, John Calvin and John Wesley wrestled with God. In our list, yours and mine both reveal that we wrestle with ourselves and with other human beings. Studies show that over 90% of people, if they happen to think about it, believe that they are going to heaven based on the simple assessment that they are not the murderer, the rapist, or the terrorist on the evening news. So what's happened? Have we become complacent? Have we become so confident and convinced that we are in right relationship with God at all times that any sense of holiness and majesty and mystery and fear and trembling have vanished with the ephemeral mists of the morning have we sung blessed assurance one too many times how does it affect our christian religion if at all that what was once the central concern or issue seems not to even make the list anymore. Undoubtedly, the increasing secularization of our world with a general disinterest in many religion matters is perhaps the chief contributor. But for those of us who take our faith, worship, and fellowship more seriously, there could be another answer. And that answer could be that Paul, in his thinking and in his writing, seems to have won the day. Most Christians now profess to believe that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. As our text today says, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I suspect most disciples of Jesus Christ have learned and internalized that message very well. A fact which may be attested to by your second mental list. The one in which you listed the benefits you receive or those blessings conferred upon you through faith through belief in Jesus Christ. Again, I may be wrong, but my educated guess is that that second list in your mind is dominated by some variation of grace, mercy, forgiveness. Because you believe in Jesus as opposed to another system of belief or even nothing at all, you have received forgiveness of your sin. You have received grace and mercy precisely when you least deserved it. Such a sentiment would be true, correct, accurate, orthodox, if you will. And you will have learned that fact over a lifetime of discipleship. If you had a chance to think more deeply, more at length, beyond simply forgiveness of your sin, you may have added eternal life. We often don't think or talk as much about eternal life as we do forgiveness. But Jesus conquered death just as much as he conquered sin. For God so loved the world, John 3:16 states, that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have, what? Not forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And again, Jesus memorably states, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We inevitably think less about eternal life as opposed to forgiveness because of the grim reality of physical death, which unfortunately unfortunately remains part of the landscape until Jesus' second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. Similar to our omission from our first list of our personal relationship with God, I suspect that there may be a a significant omission from our second list here. Many of us no doubt listed forgiveness of sins and eternal life as benefits or gifts bestowed on us by Jesus, but how many of us listed righteousness? We are quick to say, Because of Jesus, I am forgiven. Because of Jesus, I have eternal life. But how many of us ever think, much less say, because of Jesus, I am righteous? We don't say that. We dare not even think it. Because it sounds hypocritical and holier than thou at best. And it is an outright lie at worst. We don't claim the gift of righteousness because we don't feel righteous and we don't feel righteous because we know when we don't behave righteously. We understand, you see, the concept of righteousness as a moral or ethical category. It does entail certain behaviors, of course, but it is in fact rather a state of being. You see, you and I tend to view sin and righteousness as behaviors. As individual acts. I committed a sin or I didn't. I performed a righteous act or I did not. But for the Apostle Paul here in Romans, the absolute height of his thought and theology and doctrine, sin is a state, a power enslaving all human beings. And likewise, righteousness is a state, a power releasing all human beings. And when Jesus came to earth, his state was righteousness, which he exchanged for our state of sin. Such that we human beings dwelling in a state of sin might receive his state of righteousness. And all of this is infinitely larger than our smaller categories of individual behaviors or actions at any given moment in our lives. Paul says it best and most clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Scribble that down, commit it to memory, read it when you get home, meditate on it all this week. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It reads thusly: For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. Not behave righteously, but we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus came, because he lived and died and was resurrected, Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you have grace and mercy. Yes, you have eternal life. But you are also righteous. You are now the righteousness of God. And when God looks at you because of this great exchange between Jesus and us of states of being, God sees Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees love. When God looks at you, he sees peace. When God looks at you, He sees joy. When God looks at you, He sees justice. When God looks at you, He sees righteousness. His own righteousness, mind you, but which He has freely given unto you. In two more chapters, Paul talks explicitly about, quote, unquote, the free gift of righteousness that God bestows upon us. The free gift of righteousness. Something we never think about and something we never talk about. And if you think only that you are forgiven, you shortchange yourself. Or more accurately, you shortchange God. If you only think that you receive eternal life, then your time on this earth is not as productive as it otherwise would be. But if you know that your salvation is a free gift, that God accepts you and values you as you are, that you are now justified by grace through faith, and that you are right here and right now, that you are righteous, oh, watch out. A commentator in an article on righteousness in the Bible says the following in his conclusion. Some scholars find the key to this whole matter in the idea of God's righteousness as a power with the gift of righteousness being inseparable from God the giver so that the believer is drawn into the sphere of God's power. So technically speaking, you not only possess The righteous power of God. You are the righteous power of God. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus and righteousness. Even though you will always and inevitably commit acts of sin, you will be forgiven them because of Jesus Christ, but those will always be acts of a weak and infallible human flesh. Your state is now different because Jesus has come. What does Jesus say in today's gospel lesson from John 8? If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Has the Son freed you? Yes. And so you are now freed. You are beloved. You are invaluable and precious in God's sight. You are cherished and embraced and adopted by the holiest power in the universe. You are righteous. You are righteous. You are justified and vindicated, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, because it is a gift freely given to you by God, which you receive by faith. Look at verse 22 in the text. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God for all who believe. And because you are righteous, you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can also love your neighbor as yourself. Because you are righteous, you can speak kindly and tenderly to other people, always encouraging them and never tearing them down. Because you are righteous, you can overflow in generosity and charity and almsgiving. Because you are righteous, you can let justice roll down like streams and righteousness like ever-flowing waters in your home, on your job, and at your school. Because you are righteous, you can feed the hungry, house the homeless, welcome the stranger and the outcast, visit the sick and the imprisoned, and care for the widow, the orphan, and the vulnerable. Because you are righteous, you can preach good news to the poor, exercise the demon-possessed, cleanse the leper, heal the sick, Sick and raise the dead. Because you are righteous, you can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Because you are righteous, you can trample upon snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Because you are righteous, you can love your enemy, bless them that curse you, and pray for them that abuse you. Because you are righteous, you participate in the power of Him who gives life to the dead and speaks into existence the things that do not yet exist because you are righteous you have power my friends and it is power to turn this world upside down such that the first are last and the last are first the humble exalted and the exalted humble. The wolf dwells with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the kid such that swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks such that mountains are brought down and valleys are lifted up such that crooked places are made straight and rough places are made smooth such that all flesh shall now behold the salvation of our God. If anyone be in Christ, The Bible says they are a new creation. The old state has passed away. Behold, everything has become brand new. The righteousness of God, you.